Love on a Two-Way Street. That was uh, producer Robert Jimison's uh, choice, uh, a tribute to the name of this show. Uh, Robert on loan for us just for today from Political Rewind, where he does a phenomenal job. But we're really glad, uh, Robert, that you could be here to help produce the show and direct it from the control room. Uh, Virginia Prescott, welcome to Two-Way Street. What a pleasure to have you here. How long have you been at GPB now? What's the... A uh, month plus? About two and a half months. Really? Has it yeah, been that I know. Long? Time flies when you're having so well, much fun with people, you, right? And when you're as old as I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're really pleased, first of all, to have you at GPB, uh, but then also to have you uh, moving into the job of hosting on Second Thought. And today, you've had such a wonderful uh, career that I want to talk with you, as you know, about what you've done um, you and I are going to share some memories together of uh, the work that we've each done, and uh, we've chosen some music that we want to con- add, add to the show today. And um, just very briefly, I'll say at the start of the show, this is my final uh, uh, two-way street. I created and uh, ho- have hosted the show for about four-plus years. First episode went on in July of 2014. Political Rewind has become a uh, kind of a vital part of the conversation around politics in the state of Georgia, nationally, and we keep expanding the show, of course. We're now on four days a week live. We had a TV show on the uh, Sunday after Labor Day. So it's time for me to uh, move on, and I'll talk a little bit about that uh, later. But the reason I bring it up at the top is that you are going to uh, come in and do— a kind of shows that we both think are wonderful, talking to fascinating people, sometimes artists and creatives of various kinds, right? That's that's exactly it, Bill. And I just want to say what a thrill it is for me to be here on your last two-way street show. It's a wonderful legacy and really, really big shoes to fill. I, I feel a little inept to even touch the hem of your sage-colored <laughs> pants hem line, you yeah, know, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I will share. If you go, I, I'm going to figure out how to post this to Facebook later. Uh, but if you go to uh, my Twitter uh, at politics, I mean, at uh, Nygut B or at politics GPB, you will see the tray of Sublime Donuts that Virginia <laughs> brought in, they spell out two-way street. It was an amazing uh, creation. So go watch, go look at that, and later I'll post it to Facebook. All right, let's talk about you. And to start the conversation, I thought it would be interesting to hear some remarks you made when you were the commencement speaker oh my. at Southern New Hampshire University. Like many of you, I am a first-generation college graduate the ninth of 11 children in an Irish Catholic, if you had not guessed, family. There was an abundance of love and plenty of friends drawn around our eccentric household, but money was in short supply and college education was not a tradition. In fact, I watched as one sibling after another either didn't apply or dropped out of college. They couldn't keep up financially or academically or got swept up in drugs and alcohol. I am so proud to say that two sisters who married when they were young did go and get their degrees in their 40s. I think that was 2017, the class of 2017 you were speaking to. It was indeed, even though it feels a long time ago. So uh, talk about that. Talk about your family growing up. Tell people where you grew up and and the kind of household you lived in, aside from very busy. (laughs) I grew up in Concord, New Hampshire. Um, I would call it a beautiful mess, you know, that it was a really wonderfully artistic, creative, loving family, but really problematic. And when you're the ninth child of 11, it feels like there are very few resources to go around. I will say that much. But my family was either artistically, visually artistic or creatively musical. And but with a certain practicality of that Irish Catholic upbringing, you know, we really did have the picture of the Pope and John Kennedy inside of our Wow. Room. <laughs> you know, that one. And of course, you know, Jesus. I was going to say there better been a Jesus portrait there. <laughs> yes, exactly. But my family, you know, venerated Camelot and that kind of glamour, but was also um, uh, I think bound in a lot of it was problematic. I mean, you know, I, as I mentioned, there was uh, alcoholism and a lot of mental illness, which surfaced later uh, in a lot of my brothers, in fact. Um, 
And so I wanted to get as far away as possible. So how did that happen? I mean, you're here, you know, how did you decide to break out and be the first one to go to college? I was not the first to go, but oh, the first one to of graduate. the first to graduate. I'm sorry. That's yeah. right. That's um, right. I think that, uh, I don't know. It, how, does, how, does, how does one explain one's motivation? I think that I had a curiosity for a bigger world. And honestly, I'm, I'm telling you the truth and saying that it was about radio in some level. It was about hearing about distant worlds. Like Boston was felt very distant to us, listening to <laughs> Boston radio. And also, you know, reading. That was one of my first escapes was reading about Robin Hood. And, and later my mom read us uh, Jane Austen books. You know, it gave me a sense of another world and a bigger world and a curiosity for things that were bigger than the, the what, family that I knew. What kind of radio did you listen to as a kid in Concord? Oh, my gosh. I listened to WKXL Radio every morning. That was our local radio station. You know, they had the swap shop where people would call up and say, I've got an old, I've got an old washing machine, works good, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and you know, somebody might take it or not. And also, WRKO Radio was the top 40 station, and we were just glued to that when we were kids. I loved music. Music was a big part of my household. And with all of those older brothers and sisters, you were just as likely to hear, you know, Skip James at Newport as Stevie Wonder or, um, you know, the Jackson 5. Yeah, I, I would guess that that's the case. Were your parents, you said it was kind of a musical, creative family. Yeah. Um, do you remember, can you separate out what your mom, say, listened to as opposed to what your siblings would be listening to? And I ask you that for a reason. Well, my mom was also a would-be artistic person. She was one of 10, uh -huh. and her and sh her mother was widowed when the youngest was about nine. She wanted to be an artist, actually, and her mother sat her down and said, you be a teacher, a secretary, or a nurse. That's oh. what women do. And she followed that, but she, I think, was really creative in her own way. She taught us how to Irish jig. She loved Irish <laughs> music. But, you know, that sort of, you know, we had the Harry Belafontes and, yeah. the, you know, the— the Glenn Miller sings or whatever, um, that kind of thing on the family console. And then uh, independently, you know, we'd go in the library. We had a room we called the library. Big house, really big house. And close the door, the, the library doors, pocket doors, and listen to, you know, Cat Stevens. I remember just, you know, like pouring over the lyrics to Cat Stevens and Stevie Wonder. And because that was that was like lit my literature on some level. I, the reason I asked about your mother is... Uh, I think about it in terms of my own experience and wonder how a parent imprints certain uh, artistic impulses on their kids. My mother was a great lover of Broadway musicals. Now, I am really old, much, much older than you. So I remember very clearly my mother uh, putting on 78 RPM we records. We had 78s? No. You're, uh, well, I guess in the, the oldest them. people right. in your house. But I, so I remember... Uh, she'd put on the 78, there were like three records for the original cast album from South Pacific, wow. Mario Lanza, and, uh, uh, um, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm blocking uh, her name, the great uh, Mary Martin, uh, who played Nellie Farbush in the original production. And those records, that Oklahoma with the original cast, those things really stuck with me, you know, so... It's interesting when we talk, especially about music, how that really just, it, it's, it's, a, it's something that stays with you. Yes. For us, it was Jesus Christ Superstar. I think yeah. I know every word to that. I mean, we, we weren't classy <laughs> enough to listen to Did you want to sing a little to... of it today? No? <laughs> well, I'm so glad you asked, Bill. <laughs> let's, um, let's talk a bit. I want to I talk about your um, career and what I'd, but what I'd like to do is, I, I said, as, as you heard in the very opening of the show, that a lot of your career has built, built around this notion of how important you believe listening is. And we played a little bit of what you had to say about listening. Um, and this was, I think, from a TED Talk yes. that you gave in New Hampshire. In New Hampshire. Let's listen to a little bit longer portion of what you said about listening. And I think as we start to hear it, you... We hear you say, when I came back, I think you were coming back from Africa. West Africa. And we're going yes. to talk about that, too. Mm -hmm. But let's listen to this first. I remember coming back and the whole Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton thing had blown up, right? And I couldn't even talk to members of my family about what was going on. You know, so here I was working in sort of conflict revolution and inspiring civil dialogue and realizing that I was resistant to hearing what other people had to say. 
We were in the first stages of what people call the divided society, which has since gotten woefully, woefully worse. This, of course, is the uh, pretty much standard American concept of listening. The opposite of talking isn't listening. The opposite of talking is waiting. It's Fran Lebowitz. You know, you're sort of just like, when's my turn going to come? I'll just sort of wait and blank out when this person is speaking and wait till it's my turn. So for me, it's been important to cultivate an ability to listen, which I think for me is also an ability to be silent. This is, an, I think, an, a special challenge, and it's also, you know, kind of funny coming from me. I'm a broadcaster, right? Um, but I really feel like I'm doing my job best when I'm listening. So there are a couple of threads to pick up there. Um, listening and the importance of listening, but also that you just come back from West Africa. Mm -hmm. Let's go with that first. How did you end up in West Africa, because West Africa, you were in Sierra Leone, uh, it, it, in the midst of a civil war. How did you go there? What were you there to do? The first time I went to West Africa, which was to Burkina Faso, Niger, Mali, Senegal, this was a Fulbright Hayes project. And I had worked in New Orleans. That's where I got my start in radio on developing this he healthy station project, you know, a way to create sustainable stations on not a lot of money. Uh, and create programming that people would find so essential that they wanted to support it. And that was the beginning. And I loved that work. It was such amazing work. People there were doing so much with so little. You know, every radio station in the U.S. has rooms full of old equipment. They were like, you know, spin splicing together yeah. two different CD players in order to play music and microphones that were really old, uh, overmodulated. So they were doing great things. Like, we helped put a station on the air that... It was in the Sahel region of Senegal, so a desert region. And the first year that they were on the air, 40% fewer cases of malaria. It was the highest precinct for voter turnout. So it was one of these demonstrations, Bill, to me, that if people have access to good information, it will change them. They will take action. And I loved that work. And it was a few years before I connected with a guy named Bill Seemering, who actually won a, a MacArthur for his work in, in developing radio stations and worked in South Africa. And then I went back to Sierra Leone with Bill. And this was at a really critical time. It was actually just at the end of the conflict. They had created a piece, a tentative piece. And we heard from more than one person, you know, we buried the hatchet, but we marked the spot. You know, everybody knew that they had to make peace. It had been 11 years of an incredibly brutal war, and they had to figure out a way to work for it in civil society. And one of the things that was developed there was a program that it was like a radio play. It was like a, a radio soap opera with different people, actors playing characters who'd been involved in the war, like, you know, a former child soldier, this kind of uh, an army person, you know, someone who was an amputee. Um, and they modeled dialogue for each other. They had conversations with each other. And that was something that hadn't happened because there had been a really disparate society, and it was easy to foment rev revolution in that kind of a society. You know, it's interesting to he hear that because we don't think—I mean, people listen to radio. And, for instance, we know there are a lot of people who really love listening to public radio, especially NPR. But— um, I, I, you know, I don't think of radio in, in terms of being the, that we have so many forms of, of electronic communication that the notion that radio would be the one way to get information out, to bring people together, uh, is, is surprising uh, to me. What, so what kind of programming well, were you doing? Well, first of all, radio is super cheap. You yeah. know, you don't have to have telephone, you know, uh, you don't have big satellites and mm -hmm. it's also really easy to make. You don't have to have a crew to go out. You can just have a person with a microphone and they can get tape from other people. And this particular place, now Sierra Leone is about the size of North Carolina, but the roads are terrible. So it's hard to get across the, this, um, the <clears throat> country, which is part of the problem. Everything was centralized in Freetown for the most part. But anyway, so they would make these radio programs, spin off like 22 cassettes and ride them on motorbikes or wow. Jeeps across the country to get the programming out there. Um, but, and there are a lot of illiterate people there. They don't read newspapers, and the newspapers are basically in Freetown, so they didn't make it. And that is one of the key things to understand about this conflict, that information didn't get to people. So they didn't know what was going on. There was a lot of guesswork. There was a lot of chaos. Uh, but the fact that they could share this common sort of understanding 
of Atunda Allende was the name of the program. They knew the characters. There was a way that they felt like they were close to other people, the lives of others that they'd never experienced and that were so far from their own. And that, that to me is really what radio does. And I also think it's the human voice. The soul comes through the human voice. So much can get communicated. And I think it's intimate. You know, when you're listening to radio... Bill and I were having breakfast the other day at the Silver yeah. Skillet, and some guy was sitting next to us, like, un- realized that it was Bill. There's a way that your voice becomes recognizable and penetrates through a lot of different layers of understanding, I think. I, I think that's right. Here's one of the things that I think is interesting. Um, you talked about the intimacy of radio, which obviously means a lot to you, and I get that completely. Um, I, you know, I have 35 years in doing television work. And uh, I love the fact that um, there is a distinct difference in how you project your, your voice for television and radio. Television sucks up energy. Mm-hmm. When you're doing a stand-up in a newscast, you are pushing your energy out. You're big. You have to be because for whatever reason, the TV camera sucks up energy. When you come in here... Or when you go into a booth to record part of a show, you have to pull all of that back because you are talking right into people's ears. Mm -hmm. You're not pushing out to get them on the other side of the TV set. And that's the thing that I think about when I think about how remarkable the intimacy of radio can be. I love that. And there's another thing that actually neurologically what goes on in the brain when someone is seeing a photograph or a picture of somebody their brain is not participating in the same way. When they're just hearing voice or just hearing sound, they're actually neurologically engaging parts of themselves that don't, that form pictures. And that is actually a more pleasurable activity. There's something, there is something great about that inside of the brain, how it works. So they participate in a much different way. Well, it's also true that when people, you know, if you've been on TV a lot and people see you and recognize you, that's nice. It's always lovely. Um, But when they hear your voice and, you know, Virginia, <laughs> wait, you're Virginia Prescott. I hear you on, there's something very cool about that. I know, it's weird, though. It's very strange. I never know quite how to react. Uh, all right. So uh, you went to New Orleans for a while. We're going to talk about New Orleans, but here's this young woman from uh, Concord, New Hampshire, you know, the very uh, straight. Cosmopolitan. Yeah, well, but but but, but it's, but, oh, I think Concord's a beautiful town. It's the state capital. It's a beautiful town. It's a government town, though. Not a lot happens there. Okay. Okay. But then you end up in New Orleans where you began to deal with the culture of New Orleans. And I said, well, okay. So you were listening to the music down there. Pick a song. Just one example of the kind of music you uh, listen to. And you said, well, why don't you play the Mardi Gras Indians? Here they are. warms my heart. Well, of course, Indian Red is kind of a classic uh, Cajun uh, Indian uh, song. In this case, it's the Mardi Gras Indians uh, doing it. What was it like to absorb that remarkable, distinct culture of New Orleans? It was just an amazing thing for me. As you said, you know, I'd come from New Hampshire and I remember actually talking very early on to Irma Thomas, the great Irma Thomas, ruler of my heart. She did that song, but she said, there's something about the way that there's the rhythm and the way that people walk and the rhythm and the way that people talk. It really is a different place. And I remember talking to a drummer who said, well, you have to work harder. The ions are much thicker down here in New Orleans. But the Mardi Gras Indians in particular, I mean, when I went there, I was there, I arrived shortly before Mardi Gras and went and I saw these Mardi Gras Indian, uh, I'm sorry, Mardi Gras parades, you know, with these guys in hoods on crew floats and thought, Okay, this is weird. This is how people do things down here. But one of the things about the Mardi Gras Indians, and apparently they were very deeply influenced, uh, that tradition, by Wild Bill Hickok's road shows. 
in the in the late 19th century. Really? That was part of it. That that people saw those outfits, the beautiful, resplendent outfits, and I think a lot of um, the African Americans there really identified with this idea of the majestic Indian, you know, who who lived off the land and out in the woods and were never in captured, you know, they were never enslaved. And they made these beautiful costumes. They formed these tribes and they had traditional songs and they have traditional uh, roles for people, you know, like the spy boy looks for other Indian tribes coming down on Mardi Gras morning, you know, and there are fights that used to be really brutal back in the day. But in the 1970s, one of the one of the Indian tribes, the Wild Chapatulas, made a beautiful record with the Neville brothers backing them up and created this tradition of recorded Indian music. And otherwise, it'd just been, you know, people recording on the street like you heard people doing their chants just then. Yeah. I And you were there for like five, five years? years. I, uh, I spent time in New Orleans covering uh, political news. I covered the uh, 1991 governor's race between Edwin Edwards, who was just back from Prison. prison. <laughs> the bumper sticker literally vote read "Vote for the Crook," and he was running against, of course, David, David Duke. Duke, the leader of the KKK. Uh, uh, it was, it, you know, it was. What I remember most about that was not just the uh, the, the political news itself, uh, but going into like uh, Metairie. Uh, right outside of New Orleans and sitting down at a little shack on the side of the road and having having people, you know, you were sitting at like a picnic table and having a server come over and dump a whole <laughs> pile of crawfish onto the newspaper on the table and just sucking out the uh, meat from the crawfish. New Orleans is just, you must have really loved your five years I there. did. It was an amazing <laughs> experience for me and, and a real education. And for me, especially, you know, as somebody who then at that point in my life considered myself to be, you know, a well-intentioned person and I'm going to be a bridge builder. You know, I'm not going to live like the traditional way that the separation between black and white, for example, which is a very distinct thing there. And music is the unifier. But it was also great for me to learn lessons about you know, thinking one is right and good is not enough. Um, Virginia Prescott, we have a lot more to talk about. We got to get a break out of the way at this point. When we come back, I want to talk more with you about your career as you move forward from New Orleans in public radio. But let's do this and come right back on Two Way Street. Financial contributions from listeners like you are not the only gifts that keep GPB on the air. In fact, many listeners have already chosen to donate a used vehicle to GPB. We'll pick up your vehicle for free and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Get started today. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org cars. And thanks. A year after Hurricane Harvey, one company is facing criminal charges over a fire the storm caused at its facility. But not everyone agrees employees should face imprisonment. Trying to find scapegoats and calling individuals felons? Are you kidding me? This is outrageous. I'm Ari Shapiro. Who's to blame in the era of climate change? This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 here on GPB and gpbnews.org. Robert Jimison, you have picked some great, great That's music. That's isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> Let's. You want to bring it up a little bit? Do we have enough to hear it? You can blame me. <laughs> Try to shame me. And still I'll care for you. That Robert Jimison, and he's working for our show, so don't even think about him. <laughs> Virginia Prescott is uh, our guest today. She, of course, is the newest on-air personality here at GPB Radio. Uh, she will uh, start uh, hosting On Second Thought uh, sometime in September, and we're thrilled uh, that you are here. We're sort of walking through uh, some aspects of your career, of course. You were in New Orleans. You did community radio. Uh, you were in, You spent time at WNYC, one of the great radio stations, American public radio stations. I mean, you've been all over the map. 
But I want to, if I can, move forward a little more than that, a little uh, beyond that. Is that all right with you? Sure thing. So when you were at New Hampshire Public Radio, that's where you really made your mark. I mean, you were incredibly successful there. You launched, to the best of my knowledge, two, three different shows, mm-hmm. you know, right? Yes, and that was the first time I hosted, too. You know, I'd always been that pr- in the background and, and feeling like— um, you know, as a reporter, I could do things differently. As a host, you own, you know, Bill, you're owning things and you're, you're, you're putting yourself forward in a very, very different way. Yeah. But I hosted a show called Word of Mouth. That's what I originally came there for. And what grew out of that was this Writers on a New England Stage. This is a live recorded broadcast with, um, with authors at a place in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a traditional, beautiful old Beaux-Arts theater, and also started a couple of podcasts, the 10-Minute uh, Writers' Workshop, where we'd ask writers about uh, their process of writing and creativity, and also one called Civics 101 that we started. It was actually Inauguration Day of 2017 when people were asking, you know, what is the Emoluments Clause exactly? And none of us could remember what happened in middle school <laughs> when we learned our <laughs> civics lessons. So we started doing this refresher course and found that a lot of people really responded that they, you know, knowing the basics of democracy was a really important thing. So uh, you talk about the you you interviewed such a remarkable number of writers, which is what really grabs my attention. I mean, I, I look at the website. You know what? Why don't we uh, post a link? Uh, on, why don't we put a link up on our uh, on my face on my uh, Twitter? OK, uh, Robert's saying put it up on the GPB Facebook page to show people they can listen to these interviews. I mean, remarkable people, including the one little excerpt I want to use now, which is Salman Rushdie, who right. you actually interviewed twice. And this is from the 10 minute workshops you did where you talk to these people about how they do their craft. Um, so what do you think is harder to write, the first sentence or the last? Oh, well, they're both difficult, but the first sentence is harder because I think the first sentence is what sets the whole book going. You know, I mean, the, Joseph Heller, you know, the author of Catch-22, used to say that all his books started with a sentence, that, that he found this sentence and he realized that it contained several hundred more sentences. Yeah, so, so with Catch-22, there's a famous sentence about you know, when the moment Yossarian saw the chaplain, he fell in love with him, and, and that's the birth of Catch-22. And so I, 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 I know what that feels like. I mean, I've had it once or twice to come up with a sentence and thinking, oh, now I know exactly how it goes. It goes like this. Wow. Talking to Salman Rushdie. That's pretty cool. By the way, the, uh, the first line of Catch-22, he's pretty close. It is, it was love at first sight. The first time Yossarian saw the chaplain, he fell madly in love with him. And Salman Rushdie is actually absolutely correct. Joe Heller will tell you, would have told you while he was alive, that's precisely what happened. He heard this first line in his head, and the book started from that moment on. But what's it like to be dealing with iconic figures like uh, uh, Salman Rushdie. Well, we spoke with so many people for that series, the 10-Minute Writers' Workshop, and it was absolutely thrilling because there was, for all writers who are trying to create work, there is a kind of vulnerability. I mean, there's the there's the urge that you have to create something, but there's also the process, the kind of grinding, you know, you have to sit yourself down in a chair, you have to do it. And if you're not inspired or you can't figure out what to write, you go to other writers. And we learned so much about other resources that many of these writers used. But it was wonderful because we rarely get a glimpse into the creative process in that way. You know, especially with interviews, oftentimes it's like, there's so many other things to get to, um, but the idea of how one actually brings the inspiration, moves it through themselves and gets it out there is is magic to yeah. me. And it's yeah. a magic that I, I don't think I could ever be a writer, Bill. I, I, I can't, I'm not that solitary. I can't sit there and do I, I get a lot out of collaboration. But, but I think it was in the TED talk that we played a little excerpt from that, that you said that was where you were headed when you, th- you thought, thought you were headed at first. So you were going to be a writer. Right. But you turned out to be a communicator instead. I think that's it. Um, so I want to, one other quick thing about your writing series. I noticed that you and I have a couple of people in common and one of them is Carl Hyacin. Oh, he was so funny. The Florida, uh, uh, writer of, you know, really funny, funny police, you know, cop, uh, stories from in South Florida. And Carl has been a guest on Two Way Street a number of times, always one of the 
best guests you could have. He's such a lovely guy. And the tragedy of his uh. brother, who was one of the five journalists murdered in uh, Maryland, um, it just it just breaks your heart. But but Carl's an amazing guy, isn't right. he? And deeply satirical. I mean, just <laughs> yeah. his observations about you know a changing Florida for him. You know, this is a sportsman. He loves to fish, famously, and loves to be out in the world. And he's seeing it get gobbled up and built upon, and the kind of scams that are behind just about everything. I I loved his writing, and I love speaking with him. He was wonderful. So I uh, dropped a, a moment that I really want to go back to. I, I sort of planted it and, and then got away from it. Let's go back to it. Your comment about what it means to listen. And you are so on the money. And Fran Leibovitz was so on the money when she said, essentially, we're not listening. We're waiting for our chance to talk again. And let me quickly tell you a story about that. You know, that's an acting challenge. Um Actors are one of the basic lessons you have to learn as an actor is to not just wait for your next line. When you're in a scene and you are not the focus of attention for a few minutes, you have to be listening. I did a production years ago of Zoo Story, and uh, it's a two character play. I got to play the guy who does the long monologues, page after page of monologues, and they're phenomenal monologues. And to be the actor who gets to do them every night is so thrilling because you've got the audience just in the grip of your uh, uh, hand. But it was the other actor who sat on the park bench in that play and had to listen every night to five, six, seven-minute monologues and believe that he was really hearing him for the first time. Oh. So I translate what you're saying to that experience as an actor, but let's talk about listening. Well, I, you're reminding me when you said writers on a New England stage, I remember the first one, I, it was actually just the second, was Madeleine Albright. And it was wow. that classic sort of story of the woman who actually started doing writers on New England stage. She had to do a debate that night. It was quite close to the election. It was 2008. And uh, Madeleine Albright had written this book called Letter to the President-Elect. And, you know, I was boning up. I was getting my sort of journalistic ducks in a row and driving <laughs> with my senior producer there and saying, well, you know, I want to ask her. She she criticizes Bush for going into Iran. I mean, I'm sorry, Iraq or Afghanistan. But she dropped bombs on, you know, Yugoslavia. And he was like, this is not what this interview is about. And there it was so important to me because there was a part of me that wanted to show I was fairly new as a host mm. and fairly new at NHPR. And I wanted to show that I was smart and I was on top of things and I could be tough. And the whole thing that I learned from that experience was that, you know, first of all, people came there to see Madeleine Albright because they loved her. They did not need to see her, you know, skewered. There was no sort of gotcha planned. And they also, the, the important thing was that this was not about me. This was about learning as much as I could about somebody so that I could have a conversation and let them speak, you know, to sort of, to get out of the way, I think, in many ways. And I think that's a challenge as a host because you feel the pressure to, you want to move things along a narrative arc. You want to, if things aren't moving, uh, if people aren't speaking, you want to figure out ways to prompt them. But to really sit back and listen, you have to be so in the present tense. And I will say that, you know, hosting radio especially, that's the one time when I am not thinking about anything else, like what we're having for dinner, did I get <laughs> enough sleep, less, none of that kind of stuff, to be absolutely present. And that's what it means, I think, to listen. Have you learned how to do that? Are you are you good at that? I still struggle with that. I struggle with that, too. I do. Because, you know, you don't want dead air. You want to figure out what is the next question here, you know? And uh, so to, to somehow balance that, okay, I'm taking this in, but this brings up this. And you, you know, you have to formulate the question on some level and sound like you're not stumbling. But I do some stumbling, I have to say, because that means I'm a good listener. That's yeah. what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, when you think of all the programming that you've done, uh, especially in New Hampshire Public Radio, uh, and the many, many different guests you've talked to, is there a favorite? Are there a couple that absolutely stand out? Boy, it's funny to say that because I, I, so part of my practice of trying to be in the present tense is like, I think about what's going on right at the moment. Like right now I am preparing for um, Armistead Maupin at the Decatur Book Festival, book festival yeah. and Rick Bragg. So I'm loving their book so much right now and really looking forward to speaking with them. And I'm kind of in that yeah. mold. 
Um, you know, I really loved interviewing Sonia Sotomayor. She was unbelievable. You've, you've interviewed not one, but two Supreme, Supreme Court, Court justices. Yes, also Stephen Breyer. Oh, my goodness, aren't we something? <laughs> <laughs> well, they were. So, Sonia Sotomayor was fantastic. It was a it was a terrible snowstorm. We were really considering whether or not we were going to cancel, and she drove with two federal marshals, you know, up um, from Philly or something overnight. It was an unbelievable effort on her part, but her book was fantastic, and she just. It was funny because, you know, you're carrying yourself as a Supreme Court justice. You have to project uh, jurisprudence. You have to project propriety. And But her book was deeply personal. It's about her, you know, as a diabetic. Her father was an alcoholic. She had to she had to actually do her own insulin injections beginning at something like eight years old because nobody was around to do it. But what I thought was great is that she—, she was extremely human. She, you know, she, she, we laughed about a couple of things. She, she wrote in the book about her um, grandmother kind of doing like uh, incantations. You know, she was a Puerto Rican and she, she practiced some dark arts. And, you know, and I talked to, I asked her about the, the interactions on the Supreme Court. And I said, you know, sometimes I, I just can't imagine Chief Justice Roberts' grandmother doing that. And, you know, she laughed. She let her guard down in a beautiful way. There, there's actually, I came across, I don't know if it's on one of your, maybe it's on your Facebook page. I saw a really wonderful photograph of the two of you in this interview setting, and you both are laughing with abandon. Yeah. And it was really a lovely picture to look at. It was clear you two were really enjoying each other. Yeah, I think that's the thing I've learned, that I would rather have somebody at ease and feeling like they can laugh than... You know, interviews are tense situations. People are on their guard. There's a you don't want to mess up. You don't want to sound silly. And so, for the person who's being interviewed as well, I think that's the important thing for me to to make it a conversation, make it hum, connect on a human level. I, I think that's so right. Um, I mentioned to you earlier. I mean, I've really enjoyed a great many different kinds of people that have done two way street, but. George Saunders, who is one of the most brilliant writers of our time, um, short stories, uh, and then uh, uh, Lincoln and the Bardo, mm -hmm. his first full-length novel. Um, you know, when you get to a point, he and I ended up having a conversation about life and death, uh, sharing our insights, our thoughts, our th maybe not insights, but our personal feelings about it. And you get past this moment where it's so... Tell me... Uh, where did you get the idea for writing this novel? <laughs> right, exactly. And it becomes very exciting. And I, obviously you've done that with any number of people. Well, Bill, that's actually one of the things that I found so joyful. For me, listening to Two-Way Street, and I'm really, you know, I, I, I don't want to... Um uh, this is not just me blowing smoke. Yeah, <laughs> but, I, but... let's get to a break. How about that? <laughs> Come on. But let me just say, I mean, the fact that you do political rewind so many days a week and then you do Two-Way Street, you know... The, the, it, you speak many languages, and I think that there's really something to that. And it's not something we hear from a lot of people, and I just have mad respect for that. But I would love to talk to you about that, you know, like how you how you veer off script and the kind of things that have allowed you to have really expansive conversations on Two-Way Street. We will, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take our final break of the show. When we come back, I do want to talk about the transition. I, I, I do want to sort of have some last words to say about um, my four-plus years with Two-Way Street, what it's meant to me, and then talk to you about uh, the next steps in terms of uh, what you're going to be doing. So let's get our final break out of the way, and we'll be back in just a minute. The first ever Moth Grand Slam is coming to Center Stage Theater in Atlanta on Tuesday, October 2nd. Now's your chance to support GPB and get tickets to the show before they go on sale to the public. You'll also join us for GPB's meet and greet after the show. The Grand Slam will feature winners of the Moth Story Slam competition, which sells out month after month. Don't miss out. Go to gpb.org moth to find out more, and thanks for your support. On the next Fresh Air, our Emmys series continues. We'll hear from Jake Tapper, who's nominated for two news and documentary Emmys, including one for his live interview with Kellyanne Conway, comic W. Kamau Bell, who's nominated for his CNN series, and Stephen Colbert, whose program The Late Show, is nominated for three Emmys. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org.
And now Robert picks Donna Summer. You know, who's your DJ on this show? Uh, I'm telling you, we got Jimison. <laughs> He's the best. Um, so uh, my guest is Virginia Prescott, who is our most recent uh, on-air personality here, and we hope uh, going to be here for a very, very long time. Uh, she will be the host of On Second Thought. They are working on, you're working on what you want that show to be next. What's wonderful about that, Virginia, is, I mean, the show had a, a host who started the program up and running, um, and and now you get the opportunity to remake the show as, as what you want it to be, which is the whole difference between, like, me as a reporter for a newscast. What do I get to do? I do my two minutes and shut up. You get to put your mark on the whole show. Well, I, I actually don't think of it as much as putting my mark on the show as me being a person from another place who is curious about what delights, what gives people joy, what makes people tick, and understanding this place where, you know, I've never lived. I lived in the South, of course, when I was living in New Orleans, but Atlanta and uh, Georgia is its own place. And the character of the, I think the South is in such an interesting place right now. It is just, uh, you know, 150 years after the Civil War and just 50 years after the Civil Rights Movement, its, its complexities and its ambiguities are deepening. But I think in many ways, somewhat of a reflection of the rest of the country. You yeah. know, it's um, it, the the way that it is uh, the development that is going on here and also the kind of cultural uh, capital that it's built around the uh, around the country. You know, I was, I was reading something about... Um, Golly, who was it? John Meacham, I think, wrote about, you know, these cities like Knoxville and Nashville turning into tiny Brooklyn's with a drawl. You know, there's this all this new yeah. energy, these yeah. millennials moving in. But what are they going to do? What is this multifaceted, multiracial future going to bring? Yeah. It's just a really exciting time to be well, here. One of the things that uh, we've done over the years with Two-Way Street, because as a Chicagoan transplanted here, although many, many years ago now, I have always been fascinated by, troubled by this extraordinary um, ambiguity about the South. The dark history of the South is painful to absorb. Mm. And at the same time, you look at the culture, you look at the music, the literature, the food, and you say, how do these things, how do we reconcile one against the other? And that's a fascinating process to go through. And you also add what you're talking about now, which is the New South, the young people who who don't have that kind of memory of right. what we were. So it's so I want to talk a little bit about Two Way Street, because starting next week, you know, I've been so proud of this show for four plus years. Um, it's uh, and it's been just a joy to do. You know, it's like. That thing where people say, if you could have your ideal dinner party, who would you invite? And that's what Two-Way Street has been. Um, me saying to a producer, uh, you know who I've always wanted to have come over for dinner? Uh, George Sanders. Uh, Bill Anderson, the great, great country music uh, singer-songwriter who grew up right over in Avondale Estates. Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn, Chris Feely, um, just all these remarkable people. And that's what Two-Way Street has given me the chance to do. And I know you understand that because you have that experience in your past and and will continue it. But I want to take just a couple minutes to uh, kind of reflect on what Two-Way Street has been. It is time for me to move on. Political Rewind has become a pretty all-consuming program, and I'm proud of it. We have picked up audience uh, just day after day to the point that we're now on four days a week. We do the TV shows starting after Labor Day. And right now, I think politics is so vital that I'm glad I can focus on that show entirely. But for just a minute, I want to go back. Um, If you were here four and a half years ago, or almost four and a half years ago, you heard me say that the name Two-Way Street is a tribute to the first Two-Way Street, which was a show I created and hosted in Chicago back in like 1971. And there, too, we had just wonderful guests on the show. And I want to play just an excerpt from one of the shows we did, because this was one of those thrills, Virginia. Um, Woody Guthrie's widow. What? Marjorie Guthrie. Let's listen. 
When did you first meet Woody Guthrie? Well, I'm laughing because uh, I heard Woody on a recording first. I was a dancer traveling on tour with Martha Graham. And my sister in St. Louis said, uh, hey, I've got something you really have to hear. And she played Tom Joad, a song that Woody had written about the Grapes of Wrath the story of the migratory workers and I was so moved by it that I cried and about a month later back in New York City a friend of mine said hey I'm going down to see Woody Guthrie I did a dance to one of his songs and I'm going to ask him if he'll appear with me in public oh I thought that's great I'm going with you and I also pictured in my mind a great big tall fellow Lincoln-esque with boots and a high hat oh I was sure that's what that voice sounded like and I came to see him and there was this little tiny wheezy looking fellow with all this mop of hair and he looked kind of forlorn and his clothes hung on his shoulders and this was that voice yes and we met and then subsequently we did appear together in a production and that's how we met Marjorie Guthrie, oh Woody goodness. Guthrie's wife. I mean, my gosh. <laughs> little tiny wheezy fellow. I love the fact that she says, uh, St. Louis. <laughs> That's wonderful. I remember actually reading, uh, there was a book out of the letters between them, and they were passionate and fantastic. That was such a little glimpse into that. But see, there you go, the human voice. That gives you a whole different sense of it. What was that like for you then? It, well, I t when I hear that, um, no one else would notice this. Uh, when I hear that, when I hear myself asking her the question that we included on that, my voice, it sounds like it's an octave I was going to mention that. Is that, is that your television was, training? No, that I was, sort of I was, no, I was just young. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> the voice is a muscle. Um, and, you know, and I think, too, about Marjorie and Woody Guthrie. They had a really happy marriage, and Arlo was the, the child that came out of the marriage, as opposed, you know, you think about Hank. Hank Williams, whose life with his wife was miserable. She made his life miserable. And some of his greatest songs came out of the misery he experienced. Well, as... you say she made his life miserable. I think alcoholism might have contributed a fair Yes, bit. I think that, okay. <laughs> but she was unfaithful. She was nasty to him. Well, I mean, you know, that's what you need when you want to write country songs. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to also, uh, in these last few minutes, um, Say a few other words about what this show has meant. Uh, you know, I we talked about bringing to the, the table some things that we've been thinking about lately, and, and the show is getting away from us, and we're not going to get to do that. But I will say the one thing that I thought about is last Saturday was the 100th anniversary of Leonard Bernstein's birth. Wow. 100 years old. Um, did you ever get to see Leonard Bernstein when you lived in New York? No, I did not. I did not, but I, I we WNYC had carried his you know, afternoon concerts for young people. So they had old recordings of them and somebody assembled them and they were just so fantastic. Yeah. I want to play uh, just a little bit of a, a song that we've played on this show before. Bernstein wrote masses, of course, symphonies, West Side Story, Wonderful Town, On the Town. There was nothing he could not do musically. But as I've played on the show uh, before, one of the most gorgeous pieces of music he ever wrote was the finale to the musical Candide, um, a song called Make Our Garden Grow. We're just going to pick it up in the middle and listen to a little. This is from a BBC Proms concert that focused on his music. We'll build I wanted to play that, Virginia, a little bit because it's a gorgeous piece of music. Um, but it's also the lyrics and what I think the lyrics kind of tell us about maybe thinking about our own lives. They've always moved me deeply. You know, Candide, of course, you know this. 
uh, by Voltaire, the story of two people whose fates are thrown to the winds. There's, everything goes wrong in their lives. Um, they are they are they're in uh, uh, terrible straits throughout most of the of the book and then the musical. But at the end, this couple, Candide and Cunegonde, come together and they realize what that uh, they've learned. And what they've learned is that um, the world they have to make the world uh, themselves. And they say, we're neither pure nor wise nor good. We'll do the best we know. We'll build our house and chop our wood and make our garden grow. Going back to the simplicity oh. of life. It's a gorgeous sentiment. It is absolutely beautiful. And you know, I'm thinking, Bill, oftentimes in my life, pieces of music flow in when I'm thinking about other things. And why are you thinking of that right now? Are you, is it, what does it mean for you to 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 bow off of two way street? That um, that first of all that I'm putting it in good hands with you, <laughs> and and that I've had an opportunity to share. You know, political rewind is I think really I'm really th- proud of that show. But two way street gives me a chance to uh, share emotions that we all sometimes have in common. And I want to close. Uh, um, you know when uh, when. Two-Way Street went on the air. My wife, Janice Schaefer, the playwright, and I, we used to listen. We, we started on the air on Saturday afternoons, and, and we would, every Saturday afternoon, take a nap and wake up and sit together and listen to Two-Way Street. And it meant more than I can tell you to have my wife that interested in hearing the show. And because Political Rewind isn't the chance where I, the show where I really get a chance to thank her, I wanted to thank her for the way that she's um, been a support of mine. And the song that makes me think about her is a great, great song by um, Rodgers and Hammerstein from Sound of Music, sung here as we leave by Elaine Stritch. Something good. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past There must have been a moment of truth For here you are, there you are, loving me. Whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something Elaine Stritch um, the great Elaine Stritch um, that's for you Janice Virginia Prescott I wish you every bit of success with Two Way Street and On Second Thought it's a joy to have you here thanks for being with us today thank you so much it's so nourishing to hear that and so I'm honored thank you We'll see you for Political Rewind again next Tuesday.